My Year of Bad Sex, written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. Part 22. I was pencilling names onto my dance card again, just like before the cancer wobble. And now I was fully prepped up, I could indulge myself without fear or contraception to my body's content. Let's not bring my heart into this. Currently on the shortlist were Ali, Ian, Leo, another Ian, Basso, another Will, Honda, Dickie, Reggie, yet another Will, a Willem, and good old favourites, Furkan and Jalil. There was also a nurse in Derby called Ridley, who sounded good fun, but he wanted to take me out for a meal at a really good Cornish pasty place I know, and he thought Boris Johnson had been dead sexy when he was younger. Maybe I wouldn't be rushing up to the Peak District in the near future. As often proved to be the case, it was something, someone, unexpected and not on my list of most wanted, who next popped up in my inbox. Dirk was a Dutch man I'd seen a couple of times at the Naked Yoga and a couple of times at the Naked Swim. He had a really pleasant open face that matched his personality, a well-fit body, some odd faded daisy tattoos over his shoulder, and a big chunky cock. He wasn't a boy either, probably mid-thirties. We'd swapped a handful of words, but there had been no pulse of electricity between us, no lingering look or innuendo. But that was also to do with the fact of my less-than-total comprehension of what he said. I think he spoke triple Dutch, and my education stopped at double. His accent was so thick that, to my ears, the conversation went, "'Hi, Dirk, isn't it? Did you enjoy that class?' "'Oh, yeah. The teacher is a real schmadwind bit der Hondnetzkorn.' "'Oh, yeah. I, I like Peter's style, too. Um, Are you going for a drink?' "'Nay. This evening I need to prod for der Botnam Terrifinkman. "'Oh, right. Aha. Uh -huh. OK, well, see you at the swim, maybe.' I just about got away with this in short exchanges, but dreaded the moment when Dirk would say, So, Jonty, do you think we grad mit der Pumpstuckel or tacken Fkrednische Fortipe? Well, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great, uh, a great question, Dirk. Um, I, I just need to have a, have a quick, have a quick, have a quick word with, um, someone before he goes. Catch you later. Fortunately, there was plenty of interest in Dirk's tattoos, body, smile, and giant cock, for me to slip away and let the next candidate step up to try to grednich pur lekemoy. I'd more or less given up trying to engage Dirk in conversation, let alone attempting to progress the entendre from double to single. Then I saw him at the gym. He hadn't noticed me, so I didn't bother to say hi, and carried on with my workout. It occurred to me that this was the first time I'd ever seen him with clothes on. It's a wonder I recognised him. After I'd finished on my pecs and lats and tries, I went to change, filmed myself getting my kit off and sent it to some guy somewhere and, and was about to shower. Dirk was sitting naked on a bench, having also just finished his session. It would have been weird not to make contact, so I did the basics, reminding him I was jaunty from the swim. We chatted relatively easily for a while, and this time I reckon there were more words I understood than those I didn't. He spoke, I'm pretty sure, about his back problems, the damage, the operation, and the recovery. He referred to the scars, and I asked if I could see them. Sorry, is that weird? I said. It's just that I've never noticed them at yoga. He stood up to show me. There was one down his spine, a pale line with dots alongside. 
and another on his belly, a pastry-like dent. Looking at this gave me the perfect excuse to take a good hard look at his good soft penis. We carried on talking as he picked up his towel, and we moved over to the shower area. I was concentrating so much on what he was saying, even more than on ogling his nice bod. We lamented the previous gym we'd both attended, which was so much friendlier and better appointed. The staff, I said, the facility, the towels. The sauna, he said. Sure, somewhere to have a chat. To have a vank. Oh, well, I never saw much action, I laughed, but it was a place to have a good chat. To have a good vank. We went to adjacent cubicles to shower, and I began to wonder. I'd always found Dirk sexy, but suspected there was something missing, not in him, but in our connection. Had something changed? What? And why? Had he been cruising me for months, but I'd failed to grasp those hidden words of seduction? Nah. I stepped out of my shower to dry. I noticed his door was slightly ajar, and he was there, in his cubicle, looking out in my direction. We smiled. This was not just any smile. It was an M&S smile, meaningful and sexy. I took the plunge. I nodded down to his dick and said, You look terrific. So do you, he said. And that's all it took. He opened his door and invited me in, smiling beautifully all the time. The doors had no locks and were frosted glass. He must have seen my hesitation. Dirk explained, I think, that as his shower was the last one in the line, as long as the water was gushing, nobody would come down that far. They'd take another one. Fair enough. Anyway, I thought, it's not as if we'd be caught doing something bad or wrong, just having sex. Bullet points. Great kisser. That cock. Bull balls. Piercing under the scrotum. Ate me like a starving carnivore. When I warned him I was close, his eyes indicated a green light, and so I burst into his hungry mouth. Within minutes he was asking if I could come again. Not until about Sunday, I said, and we laughed. He indicated we should leave. I pointed out that he hadn't come. Hey, it's okay. I'm going out tonight. I'll sort it then. We left the shower, dried, changed, and went our separate ways. Unexpected, friendly, safe, sexy fun. It had all been a delightful surprise, like finding a t-shirt at the back of a drawer that had been lost. But I never wore it again. The shower scene, not so much Hitchcock as Dutchcock, was a one-off. After that vigorous escapade we bumped into each other on the mat or in the pool, and he made no reference to it. I did tell him that if he fancied a repeat in less constricting conditions, just to say the word. And to say it clearly, very clearly. Various contenders faded in and out again like spectres in the banquet scene of the Scottish play. From the yoga group there was Uday. Me. Uday? That name rings a bell. Have we met before? Him. You're thinking of Uday Hussein, son of Saddam. That's not me. He was right. I was. There was Shamar, the dancer, with an impossible leg extension and a penchant for a spit-roast. Storm, Gaston, David, Jacques, Thibault, Bob... Josh, another Josh, and another Josh, so many Joshes piling up like plastic cups in a sink, swirling around the plug, neither used nor recycled. I checked my phone. There were twelve Joshes listed. Some had an identifying clue. Highgate, or Prince Albert, or Water Sports. Some had nothing else, not even a photo. Some were double-barrelled. Teacher Brixton, or 
way to Bloomsbury, or even no kissing. Quite a few of them shared the same surname, Grinder. What a tight, incestuous family. Ahmad came for a massage. Now, I say Ahmad, but think of it in inverted commas, because I don't for a second think that was his name. I could call him Alistair, or Lloyd, or Zebedee, and it would be just as suitable. Let's stick with Ahmad, as he looked like an Ahmad, and it's the pseudonym he chose. He contacted me, asked when I'd be free. That night, actually. A lunchtime session with Furkan hadn't worked out as his shifts had changed, so I was open to welcoming convivial company for the evening slot. We agreed eight o'clock. Do I have to undress completely? Yes. I can't massage through clothes. Hmm. Pause. Okay. He sounded cautious. But I'll keep you covered at all times with towels. Hmm. Pause. Do we really need towels? These were the first of his mixed signals. We met at the tube. Ahmad was much, much better looking than in his profile photos. I told him so. He'd brought a bottle of wine, which was kind of him. I had no clue that he'd be taking it home with him, too. We had a small glass each, and compared notes on some of our other dates. It had become the default way to relax and share funny stories with a guy, to reassure each other of our good intentions. I told him some bits and pieces, was my usual transparent, trusting, naive, gullible, oversharing, self. I talked about my work, journalism, therapy, and my massage training. Then I asked Ahmad about his. He said, I think I'll keep that private. You don't want to tell me what you do? No. Right. Okay. I asked about his cultural background. His skin was that gorgeous tone that really got my juices bubbling. I was expecting a country to be named something Mediterranean or one of the stands, perhaps a mix of African and Caribbean. I think I'll keep that private too. You don't want to tell me where you're from? No. He was in my flat, so it seemed reasonable to ask whereabouts he lived. Not his address or even a postcode, but which part of London, north or west, would do fine. Unless you don't want to tell me that either. He smiled and looked down into his glass. I left a long silence. This reticence was a new one on me. New and unwelcome. He said he felt anxious. I told him that now I did too. This was also unfamiliar. Being the one in charge of the unfolding events had always instilled cooled assurance before a power and confidence. Not this time. Do you find people often get to a point of saying, This is not for me. I'm going to go. I thought about it. I thought some more. No. Not often. Not ever. No, wait, there had been what's-his-name, the scouser I'd met for a coffee at the Brazilian cafe on the corner, who'd initially wanted morning cuddles, and then said he had to go to work. But otherwise, everyone had come to me for massage had had exactly that. And more. I'd even followed through when I knew it was more philanthropic than lechery. There were some more uncomfortable silences, into which I fed increasingly banal inquiries. These were batted away with decreasing attempts at finesse. I won't give you those details. Nor those. I'll keep that private too. No, I can't tell you that. 
What did he think I might do with the information if he told me he came from Iraq or lived in Bermondsey or was a plumber called Imran? I was tempted to ask which season of the crown was his favourite or if he preferred full fat or skimmed milk, but he'd probably have drawled. I think it's better if I keep that a secret. We managed something approximating a smile. We sipped our wine. Well, he said. Well, I said raising my eyebrows, waiting for the inevitable, but refusing to wield the knife for him. Well, I'm not going to say it's time to begin the massage. No, you're not. You're going to go. Yes, I am. Hallelujah! A straightforward statement at last. You're a nice guy, John T. I respect your opinion, I cut in quickly. I didn't need his wishy-washy endorsements. I'm curious, naturally, about your reasons for leaving— but you're not going to tell me those, are you? No. You've said as much as you're going to. He nodded. Mmm. He had the grace to look abashed. I stood up, went to the fridge, and took the rest of Ahmad's bottle of wine back to him. Despite his efforts to ease his guilt by insisting I keep it, I thrust it at his chest, forcing him to take it. No, please, it was for you. No, no, I insist. Our smiles were plastic, my inner voice was growling. I would rather pour this away than drink it. It would make me sick. I felt like a character in EastEnders. The table, the towels, the oil, the music, the lights, the pill, the trim, the vibe, all in place, all as usual. And he was leaving because, if he'd said, your pictures were flattering, I expected someone younger, or I don't think I feel safe, or I have a wife and children and I'm racked with guilt, or I'm so nervous I've got the shits. That would have been honest, and therefore kind. The lack of information was the insult. A unilateral decision with no reason given. Unfair. I got his coat and handed it to him, taking the bottle of reproach while he put it on, then passing it back as if holding it would burn my palms. Even amid our maladroit fumbling, stiff in all the wrong ways, my default good manners fought for expression. Shall we at least have a hug, Ahmad, or whatever your real name is. He gave a smile of such inscrutability that it ran through all the variations of enigma. It concluded with a nod, as if he was graciously indulging me in an enormous favour. He allowed my arms to encircle him lightly. It was an insipid moment, as pointless and devoid of satisfaction as being on hold to Virgin Media. I didn't ask him to text me when he got home safely. I didn't wait to give him a smile if he turned back on reaching the lift. I hope he did. He'd have seen me go inside and close my door. How could he leave when he'd never arrived? Ahmad, the man who wasn't there. Five minutes later I left the flat and went to the nearest shop. I needed a bottle of wine. Expensive wine. Wine that wouldn't leave a bitter taste. I suppose it was going to happen at some point with someone out of all these men. These many men. Ha! <laughs> many men. How could I have known that the vocal warm-up we'd done at drama school in my early twenties would be an augury of this year in my mid-sixties, sung to the tune of Rossini's William Tell Overture, many men, many men, many men, 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 many men, many men, men, men. And then I began to think. Not always a good idea, but this time I churned the mud at the bottom of the pond, and as the murk of hurt and indignity settled, new aspects were revealed. There had been loads of occasions when I'd thought— I don't fancy him, but I'll do the decent thing and see it through, and felt a smug buzz of self-righteousness. But how often had the other party felt the same? I'll let the old guy fuck me. It's easier than turning him down now. He's given me wine and isn't going to kill me. 
He thinks I didn't see that beetroot-stained knife. Hell, it's probably the only sex he's had for months, the bald fatty. Bring it on then, Daddy. I'll pretend to be turned on. Hell, I was there charity work. Dear God, that came as a hell of a shock. How many times had I been pity-fucked? I finished the bottle of wine and crawled, chastened, into bed. Will reappeared. Will, why are you so sexy, Waters? Don't worry, I'd forgotten about him too. It was a Friday evening in spring. I'd done a day's work at the BBC, had one therapy session with a client, and then gone to the opera house to see Andrea Chénier by Giordano. It was terrific, and I cried at the end. Mind you, it would be more noteworthy if I hadn't burst into tears. I was once telling a Radio 3 colleague that Mozart's Die Zauberflöte would never be my favourite, as I want opera to move me to tears. So gobsmacked was he by this notion that he turned his shocked features to me like a startled camel. As I often did, I'd bought two tickets before being reminded that most of my friends would rather chew off their own nipples before being subjected to all that wailing. I gave my spare to the box office for resale, and just before curtain up a charming man slipped into the seat next to me. We chatted in the interval, and I could have fancied him until he mentioned my wife and the kids, Jonquil and Jaden. Nice chap, though, a trumpet teacher from Nebraska. Very tall. I walked home and decided to do a few cheeky lines of Mephedrone, or MCAT, or Meow Meow, which I had recently ordered from Nathan's dealer. I had begun to love this stuff and hate it in equal measure. I liked the rush of heightened sexual awareness it created, but disliked the fact that I couldn't follow through. Because of the former, I began to watch some porn on my laptop, and because of the latter, I was there for hour after hour, tugging away on my floppy dick but with no relief at hand. At 2am I got a call from Will. We had a relaxed chat. He looked so peachy, his slutty talk and appealing contrast to the wholesome image. His persona was cheeky, open and inviting. He asked if he could come round there and then. I tried to say no. It was 2.30am, and I asked what he was up to the next day instead. Going to Bristol. Oh, why, I asked aloud, can't I do the spontaneous thing? I told him I'd never get hard anyway, as I'd done a few lines. I'll bring something to help you. Viagra, presumably. I had plenty of that. Okay, Will, I said. Let's do this. He said he'd be at mine in thirty minutes. I showered, tidied up, and swallowed a blue pill. It would do the trick. Or would it? It would need to counteract the MCAT. Doubtfully, I squeezed my soft cock. I reached out for the box and grabbed another blue pill. Not recommended, but hey, what could possibly go wrong? Will arrived. We hugged on the landing. He came inside, and then the strange events began to unfold. First of all, he muttered things I couldn't understand. Then he held my arms at my sides and gave me orders. He undressed me roughly and pushed me to the floor to suck him. Then he shoved me onto the sofa and did what he wanted. I struggled to my feet and wanted to undress him, but he was determined to override me, so there was quite a tussle for supremacy over who did the disrobing. All the while, Will had a manic grin on his face. On the surface, he was friendly, but there was a hint of something darker going on, and it disturbed me. Why couldn't he relax and just share some uncomplicated fun? He wanted a shower. I took him to the bathroom to explain how the idiosyncratic plumbing worked, but he pushed me forcibly out of the room and closed the door. 
In a few minutes he emerged, went straight to the bedroom, plugged his phone into a socket and waited for me to join him. What ensued felt more like a fight than lovemaking, with me on the losing side. He was undeniably handsome, with a gorgeous body and the tastiest-looking bum I'd seen for some time. I tried to turn him around, but he resisted, with force. I tried to caress his face, but he pushed my hand away. We did that move again and again, like some prepared routine. What the hell was he playing at? My apprehension grew by the minute. Will sat astride me as I lay back. He pulled and pulled repeatedly at my cock, which had responded as required to the two blue pills. "'Why is your cock so big, Daddy? Why? Why is it so massive? Tell me, Daddy, why?' I'd had a few weeks to think about this. I said, "'It gets big when it sees you, my boy.' I was pleased with that. We kissed, but not much. It was all mismatched in mood and style. Then, suddenly, Will rolled over, switched off the light, and settled down to sleep. When I got up later for a pee, I noticed his phone still attached to my cable. I didn't object. I was merely struck by his air of self-possession. I slept a bit, but then he was at me again, pulling crazily at my poor cock. Why is Daddy's cock so big? Why? Tell me why. Then he collapsed back to sleep. At 8.30 a.m. his alarm jangled, and he was all over me again, wanting a kiss, but settling for a snuggle. We had a grope and cuddle, and he tried to stab his small, stiff cock into me. I explained, as I had before, that I was a total top, and nothing goes in there. He went to shower. I stepped into the cubicle with him and soaped his back and bum, but it felt as if I had served my purpose and could be dismissed. I offered him breakfast, tea, coffee. He asked for some water, but didn't touch the glass I put on the table for him. At the door I asked for a hug. He obliged, but it was as cool as air-conditioning. He walked down the landing with almost an angry stomp. But why? Tell me, why? At the end of the corridor he ignored the lift, pushed the door open, went through it, and let it close behind him with a slam. That was at 9.30. I returned to bed and played back our few hours in my head. Will Waters, a handsome, startling young man. No affection, no humour, no tenderness. Everything on his terms to fit his agenda. No compromise or empathy. Only now did it strike me that his freaky attitude was due to some kind of chems. Yes, that would explain his frenzied hyperstate. I didn't mind him being high, but I wished he'd told me. Invited me to join him on that plateau. Or maybe he just needed a place to sleep in the West End to avoid paying a cab fare home. At eleven o'clock, when I got up, I sent him a message. Thanks, Will. That was great. Safe journey, and have a nice weekend. He'd already blocked me. More won't than will. Weird, wired will. Ah well. Time to get swiping right again. My Year of Bad Sex is written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. Music and studio production are by Andy Mills. My Year of Bad Sex is a Protocol production. Protocol.